Hi guys, thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. We just wanted to give you an update because on this episode we talk about the incredibly tragic and infuriating case of George Floyd. And since recording this episode, which we did earlier in the week, there have been a lot of developments, including the fact that Derek Chauvin, who was fired on Tuesday along with three other officers involved in the let's say, murder of Floyd, although technically people are saying in the uh, detainment of Floyd, was taken into custody Friday and faces charges of third-degree murder and manslaughter. And we'll have a lot of more updates around the case and around the responses to the case next week. Hello, hello, hello. And welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Alper. And I'm the other host, Matt Taibbi. Uh, how are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, nice warm weather. Um, trying to enjoy this post-apocalyptic uh, or pre-apocalyptic setup. Is it that post yet? I think it's still no, apocalyptic. No, I guess it's not yet. It's apoc- or maybe even pre? I think apocalyptic would be the right word Okay. you, you would use. One observation I have about this as it goes on is that... Um, the main thing I'm getting from how people are responding to this is that it's like the opposite of one of those uplifting stories about how people band together in a crisis and, you know, overcome their differences. And yeah. it, it, like, if, it just feels like we're, everybody's just bickering more than ever. And like all that people do nowadays is, is, is uh, yell at each other and right. blame each other for things. And I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't want to ever see any, any more people ever again. <laughs> well, I know. You know? Well, yeah. and there've been these fights. Like I just saw this story about some, some people fighting on a beach in England and, um, which is funny combination. I don't think of England as a beachy place. Although I've been to beaches in England, but right. You just think that because everybody's there's their skin is translucent. Yeah. Like, their skin is translucent. I just think of them as like, I guess there's very English coasts, right? It's a very English thing, but no, they're all rocky gray, though. gray and rainy. Yeah. It's all rocky. Yeah, yeah. They were designed to prevent Nazis from scaling them. I think is the idea. Uh, Oh, like God created them that way? Yeah, exactly. Well, he did create the Nazis, too, which is why I don't understand how you... Well, not to alienate our entire religious base. I wonder how many people are... I bet our, we have our, our, our massive, significant religious base, right? Well I, well, I bet we have religious people, but they're, they must be the kinds of tolerant religious people who are okay with atheism, agnosticism, and the framework that um, the existence, my own, my own um, view, which is that the existence of things like uh, holocausts, um, you know, Nazi Germany, Holocaust, other Holocausts, um, and unrequited love both prove that God doesn't exist. <laughs> and I don't mean unrequited love because it's torture or whatever. I just mean if there were any justice in the world, you wouldn't have like Thomas liking Sarah, Sarah liking Frederick, Frederick liking Thomas. You would have like the two, the two who are like each other, like each other back. You know what I mean? It's just so fucked up. I just ne- I ne- I never thought about this. <laughs> you like, never thought of how this is another, is this a Holocaust like? Um, I just never put the, put it in cosmological terms like, like that. But, well, now, um, that, now that I did, you're not going to be able to. I'm never going to sleep again. I know. Ever. Uh, okay, we got a lot of stuff to get to because a lot of stuff happened this week, right? Yeah. So um, I guess we should get to the four food groups. Yeah. Uh, Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? And I, I'm up, right? It's yeah. uh, Democrats suck this week. Dems, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I picked out kind of an easy one, a uh, sort of friend, friend of show, David Sirota, Got did an article, on. did a story basically about Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, by the way. Right. Friend of, friend of Rolling Stone. 
friend of Rolling Stone. Yes, has, exactly. Has grace the cover, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, two of my favorite covers, Andrew Cuomo and the Jonas Brothers. Oh, nice. Put them together. Imagine yeah. putting them together. Right? Wouldn't that be great? They, yeah. They, they could make uh, beautiful music together. Uh, so Andrew Cuomo, uh, apparently a, a couple of years ago, received uh, over a million dollars from the Greater New York Hospital Association, or GNYHA. And uh, this same uh, association lobbied in the middle of the crisis for immunity granted to not just care providers, but to senior level executives of nursing homes um, in New York and, uh, and formal granted it. So it's, it's kind of a payola type story. The headline of the piece in the, in the Guardian that, that uh, David wrote was Andrew Cuomo give immunity to nursing home execs after big campaign donations. And, you know, the reason I, I think this story is interesting is because Andrew Cuomo has sort of been held up as this par paragon of awesomeness uh, in terms of his response to the scandal. But, you know, really, he's the scandal just a, or, or uh, I'm sorry to, the, to this uh, pandemic. Right. And there's, you know, there's been a lot that hasn't been so hot in his response. That rhyme. Yeah. And uh, this is one of them. I mean, you, you could look also at the other infamous uh, episode uh, in which you know, the Medicaid cuts were were pushed through in the middle of the crisis the uh dangling uh the opportunity of uh, uh working with bill gates right andrew cuomo is i think a politician who prior to this year most people who would consider themselves sort of liberals or progressives would have thought of as a kind of classic sort of corporate um uh, not even corporate Democrat, but just sort of a, a corporate stooge, basically. Yeah. Whose whole purpose to be in office was to is to hoover up huge amounts of donations and then sort of hand, hand out favors, um, you know, in, in the classic form, you know, sense of that kind of politician. Right. And um, and suddenly, again, because he's being contrasted with Donald Trump, who is you know is worse and, and more ridiculous. Suddenly, that translates into he's uh, he's good. Right. which, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a media illusion. It just seems, seems to me. Right. So. Yeah. He's, I mean, not only is he in many ways better than Trump, but his style is very decisive and taking action and he does his updates and he's like, you know, he's informed uh, and kind of based in numbers and reality. But he, it's funny, I had a friend of mine in real life and friend of my show on the Katie Halper show. Uh, her name's Ava Farkas. She's the head of this uh, Metropolitan Council on Housing, which is this big housing organization. And she was saying how terrible Cuomo has been in terms of housing, also the homelessness issue. And she's like, he's just a fiscal uh, conservative who passed, pushed through an austerity budget. And she says that somehow he got the legislature to, uh, agree to not like go 2% beyond the budget ever. And it's this law that they follow as if it has any meaning or is actually written into anything. And it's not, it's just this kind of weird agreement. And of course, New York people follow New York politics know that he was um, really used the IDC, the um, independent democratic caucus um, in New York state to kind of look like the good guy because he could always point. He basically empowered these very conservative Dems so that he would not have to do anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that came up in the uh, debate with Cynthia Nixon, the campaign with Cynthia Nixon. Yeah. So Cynthia Nixon last, last summer. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just interesting how suddenly it, it, it's like the Giuliani effect. 
you know, so people have in the middle of a crisis, they want they, they want to gravitate towards somebody who projects strength on television. And it may not be based on terribly on reality, but it's just a, it's, it's a media fixation. And the, the press is always interested in burnishing somebody who, who has that kind of muscular uh, persona on television. That, I mean, look back through any uh, war story, they're always looking for the Schwarzkopf figure that right. they can put in front of a microphone and the people can, can, you know, so. Wow. Uh, and the Italian thing, I just realized Giuliani, Cuomo. Schwarzkopf. Schwarzkopf. Well, he's, <laughs> it's Axis power. Right. Schwarzkopf right. has to be of German descent, right? So, right. Yeah. so Cuomo, Cuomo is kind of a jerk. That's our Democrats. Like, what do we have for Republicans? Suck? For that, I'm going to, uh, let's just show a, a little video which is of Kevin Hassett, who is the White House advisor, White House economics advisor, Kevin Hassett, had something really interesting to say over the weekend to CNN's Dana Bash. And the context of this, he told CNN's Dana Bash on Sunday as part of his argument that the U.S. economy is poised for a quick turnaround, even as he acknowledged that the unemployment rate will linger in double figures through November's election. And yet he had the following to say. Our capital stock hasn't been destroyed. Our human capital stock uh, is uh, ready to get back to work. And so that there are lots of reasons to believe that we can get going way faster than we have in previous crises. But I just, so human capital stock. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with the level of fucked upness and problematic. I love that. It's I mean, it's almost amazingly frank, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I want a T-shirt that says HCS on it. You know, like I'm an HCS. I mean, like, yeah, HCS, we're, we're all like human it. capital human stock. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, the United States of human capital stock. But I got to say, you know, that's obviously brings up a lot of, uh, you know, very much evoke slavery, um, owning people seeing people as stock, uh, as capital. I mean, it's great. It's really packs in a lot of terrible stuff into one clause or maybe one sentence. Our human capital stock is ready to go back to work. So one sentence has two great references. You got stock and human capital. I don't know what else you could ask for if you wanted to pack Well, up, again, this is another one of those Reese's Pieces moments. It's you got your human capital and my stock, right? It's like they, they oh, combined yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, I feel like this is more of a person who just read too many Ayn Rand novels. Right. Right. And that's how they see humanity. It's, uh, you know, a few a few people who few atlases who are kind of holding up the world on their shoulders and then just lots of human capital stock whose, whose usefulness is pretty limited to, you know, driving the engine of right. capitalism or right. whatever, exactly. whatever it yeah. is. They're cogs. The yeah. These are folks who, who think, uh, you know, like Adam Smith is an erotic novel, basically. Right. Like, right. I mean, how can you really disagree? I guess that's true. Yeah. The whole invisible, disagree? the invisible hand. It's very, you know, erotic. <laughs> Can't deny it. There's okay. a joke to be made. There's a bunch of jokes to be yeah, made there about yeah. the invisible hand. I know, right? Yeah, I'm going to have to work on my Adam Smith routines. But yeah, guys, uh, send in some jokes. Uh, Human you know. capital stock. That's got to be a hashtag. Stock, Why is that not trending hands. already? Well, you know who defended him? Who? And this is always a good sign when someone like this defends you. Jonathan Chait. In fact... Matt, he's had a problem with you, which I assume makes you really reconsider your entire... So, Chade, always, he always hates me. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so he wrote, yes, economists should probably avoid confusing jargon 
when communicating in public. But I think people are getting way too outraged over an economist using an economics term. Okay, Jonathan, dear, lamb, love. It's not that it's confusing jargon. How up your own ass are you to not get that that's not what people are upset about? No one's like, oh, this confusing human capital stock jargon. I don't even know how to follow it. That's not the issue. It's that I, it's I'm, offensive. Don't even chate, Don't even think of chating out on me. I, I'm, I'm going to take Chate's side on this one a little no, bit. No, you're not. I am. I am. I think, I think probably, probably what he's saying, and there, there's like a tiny bit of validity to this, is that people, when, when economists get together and they talk about how the world works, they do refer to things like human capital stock. And they probably use all kinds of terms that are, that, I mean, that are preposterous sounding to an ordinary person. Right. But but refer to things that they do have to quantify in, in, in their academic discipline in a way that, you know, is going to sound off-putting. But, I, um, I bet you we could find some economists who would doesn't say, mean that he wants to make lampshades out of all of us. You know, it's just, he's just saying that that's what the labor pool, that's just another word for the labor pool, Right. Well, a couple of things I'll push back on. One is I'm going to revisit my primary point, which is that he doesn't even know how to make his point correctly. This is a very Jonathan Chait is a total fraud. Like not only is he bad politics, but he really is sloppy, um, disingenuous, like really one of the most disingenuous guys out there. In this case, I'm not clear. And this is we got to have. Can we please have a feature or a segment called dumb or disingenuous? Because I don't know if he really doesn't get that the things people are offended by in this statement is not that it's confusing. That's not the issue. No one's like, oh, my God, this wasn't trending because people are like, oh, my God, this is so confusing. I'm so offended and outraged by how confusing this jargon is. Like, no one said that, right? That's not the issue. Um, In fact, the person who I saw tweet about this, Donna Imam, who's running for um, Congress in, in Texas, uh-huh. Texas 31. Uh, she tweeted this and, and she said there, he said it out loud, our human capital stock workers are owned by stockholders. Um, so that's one of the things they're offended by. Also on Democracy Now! today, they had a uh, really great guest on um, Ibram X. Kendi, who talked about the, you know, very, prob- you know, troubling legacy that that evokes of slavery. In response to this, Professor Kendi, um, you tweeted, this is jarring because my enslaved ancestors were literally human capital stock. No matter what, they were always told to go back to work. This could be 1820. I mean, it's, it's devastating. And, and, and I think for any American, Republican, Democrat, middle-income, low-income, poor, black, white, Latino, I think this should be an indication of of what the Trump administration thinks about about you, that essentially they're driving you back to work so 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 they're benefactors, so they can make money. And it's just that simple. And Jonathan Chase like, guys, calm down. It's okay when economists use confusing terms. Okay. That's not the like if you want to make the argument that that's not problematic or even if you want to make the argument that that's closed behind closed doors economic economist talk that's one thing but at least address the concern or else it's like saying look i get it that it's bad when people use um h words c words and s words in a row 
<laughs> you know, like that's not the issue. And also, I think that we could find economists who probably would say that there's something wrong with the um, way certain economists look at the world, which lets them use those terms. Like, I'm sure we could find economists who would say they've never had to use those words in, except in a critical way. Um, in fact, we should we should try to get one of those on the show. Uh, in the just in the pantheon of Jonathan Chait statements, it doesn't it doesn't hit me as uh, strike me as one of the worst ones. And I, again, I it's it's a terrible sounding term. I would never say it on television, but I get what he is saying. He's, he's just it's just a bad word for the labor force, you know. Yeah, and it's insensitive to slavery. And um, besides the whole ex- exploitation thing, you know, uh, across the board, I do think that humans being stock is is not a good. I'm a hot take bad thing and bad thing to refer to uh kind of uncritically okay but, come on, throw me a bone at least see, at least acknowledge that he's not even making a smart point because he's not addressing well he's people. jonathan chait what do you expect right, exactly yeah he's so dishonest he's so stupid this, he is, always- the, this is this is the guy who, who wrote a story that uh you know that that donald trump had been uh you know compromised by the, the kgb because he you know visited the Soviet Union in 1980. That was a cover story right. this guy wrote. So, yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's a goof and, and I, I get that, but on, on, the li- on the list of things that he said over the years, that uh, I won't push back anymore on that. We, we, right. we, we can move on. I mean, human capital stock, terrible. It sounds awful. I, I totally get it. But I, yeah. you know, this is a geek in glasses. I know what he's thinking. You know, he just doesn't have a good word for what he's trying to say. Uh, isn't that weird? Uh, Dan, if we could uh, look at the video of now deceased Saturn. This is a what we're for those who uh, aren't um, watching. Watching, we're seeing a somber uh, montage of shots of an alligator named Saturn. He's being brushed. He's being brushed. Yeah, washed. Yeah, and uh, he was 84 years old, and he just died. Uh, and he was at the Moscow Zoo, and legend has it, um, although it's apparently not an accurate legend. He's cute. He's so he's cute. cute. He was he was eighty. He was eighty-four. He had a good run. And um, the he, he was at the Moscow Zoo, and the legend is that this this was a he had escaped from the Berlin Zoo, and the Russians took him back to Moscow after World War II. And the legend was that it wasn't a a Berlin Zoo alligator but actually it was from Hitler's personal collection. So the headline this week was uh, alligator rumored to have belonged to Hitler dies in Moscow. So uh, isn't that weird that Hitler's Hitler's alligator died this week? Um, isn't that weird indeed? Um, uh, this story touched me personally because this is in the, Mo- I actually, uh, as you know, uh, briefly worked at the Moscow Zoo. Wait, uh, what? I yes. didn't know that part. What I did, did a, you uh, did, I, did, you, did you ever, um, the, the brushing of the alligator was more of a broom, by the way. Did you yes, that wasn't me. No, I, I used to have a column in, my, in the newspaper we had there at the Exile where, where I was called Working Here, where I would get a job uh, somewhere in, in Russia and then write about the experience. And one of the jobs, one of the first jobs I had there um, was be, working in the elephant cage. Uh, so I, I used to shovel manure at that zoo. Although, if I remember correctly, Saturn was on the other side of the zoo. But you knew about Saturn? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you I, know didn't know, I didn't know he was Hitler's alligator. 
Uh, I mean, he probably wanted to keep that on the down low. Right. Yeah, exactly. He probably he didn't brag about that, didn't, right? It didn't, didn't boast to the other animals. Yeah, yeah especially so. in Russia of all places. You're going to, yeah, you know. Exactly. I wouldn't yeah. have thought that Hitler's alligator would be there. but Is that when they liberated, um, I don't know, where where did the Russians go? Berlin. Berlin, yeah. They, when yeah. they liberated uh, Berlin, they, they found him in, Basically his, bu- everything in his bunker? Basically uh, Yeah, probably it was in his bunker, along with his, his skull. Right. Mm. Remember the whole uh, Hitler's piece of Hitler's skull that ended up back in Moscow. Oh, no. Wow. Uh, Lots of basically Hitler's skull. We have piece of Hitler's skull. (laughs) Hitlerski chair is what that would be called. Hitlerski. Excuse excuse me. Hitler is his name. Well, in in Russian, you'd say say Hitler. Yeah. Sounds like a sitcom character. (laughs) It's Hitler. Yeah. Oh, that's Hitler. Yeah. Well, they just don't have a good letter for like the H. They don't have an H in Russian. They have a. Ha, and they have a G, so it doesn't, there's no... So it'd have to be Hitler or Gitler? Right, it'd be Hitler or Gitler. Yeah, I would so. think they'd go with the first one, but anyway. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Anyway, so yeah, sad about that. And, and the the Russian news stories about it pointed out that this alligator is a, is a Mississippi alligator. So it, it traveled originally from the United States to Berlin, was free, was... Ran loose during the war, and the Russians captured it. Had a long, eventful life, uh, and it's sad that it's now dead. So, uh, what do we have for "Isn't That Terrible"? So, for "Isn't That Terrible," we have really ter- two two parallel terrible stories. Um, and actually, let's can we watch the video of the Karen in Central Park one first? Sure. Okay, and that'll be a good setup. And th- and what we're about to see in this video is um, a white woman. Um, who apparently a man who is black, they both have the same last name, Cooper, but they're not related to each other. Um, Karen Cooper is the woman who's white. The African-American man is Christian Cooper. They were in the in Central Park and they were, um, apparently she had her dog unleashed in an area where you're supposed to have your dog leashed. And um, avid birder, uh, Christian Cooper, encouraged her to put her dog on a leash. Uh, he's also on the board of the Audubon Society, so he's very up on like the rules of Central Park. And she refused to, and then he started filming her. Um, he he, what he did was he also apparently he he offered the dog some treats because he wanted to show the woman that unleashed the dog could run away. So he offers the dog some treats, and then she freaks out. And uh, let's watch what happens now. Will you please stop? Sorry, I'm asking you to stop. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording. You please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. I'm taking pictures of calling the cops. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. Matt, shake me his head in case. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble, and there is a man, African-American, who has a bicycle helmet. He is recording me and threatening me and my dog. There is an African-American man, I am in Central Park, he is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. And my... I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. Oh my God. So that woman, by the way, in case you can't see, she is not only is she calling um, the police, but she's also kind of like choking the dog. And he was holding him by the, she was holding him by the collar in large part because she did not have him leashed. Um, and so she got outed by two dog walkers who worked for her. What's stunning about it, one of the many things that's stunning about it is that she said 
She said she was going to call the police and and say that an African-American man was threatening her. Like, she tried to threaten him. I mean, she totally placed his life in danger, like, in a very graphic and explicit way. Right. And, and she, knew exactly what yeah, she was doing. Exactly. Or, she didn't just accidentally rep- mention that. She, ba- she threatened him and used the violence and racism of the police in general as a threat. Yeah, and exactly. I, right? She's basically saying, like, I'm going to call the police who have a tendency to, um, you know, overreact to m- murder black men, especially, you know, unarmed black men. And what's so bullshit about this is that her apology was like, oh, I, I'm sorry, you're right. I didn't realize that I wasn't sensitive to the racism stuff. It's like, no, you were. Yeah, like, exactly. You absolutely were. And we know that because you said it beforehand. Like, I, I know. And, and I guess I'm being ridiculous because like there's so she did so many terrible things in that one clip anyway. Why am I harping on that? But that to me is just like, don't even tr- like, look, you you made the decision to say that out loud and on video. And then you're going to pretend like you were just scared and in the moment. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not going to fly with anybody who actually watches the video. Although, of course, lots of people don't watch <laughs> watch things before they comment them on them uh, in America. But the amazing thing, it's it takes a lot of work to become the worst person on the Internet. Yeah. Uh, and it's really not easy given the kind of stuff that's on the internet. But I, I think she, she's going to hold that title for a while. Yeah. She's going to be like the Joe Lewis of worst internet people. I mean, that's that, that belt is going to be hers for a good long period of time. Right. It's, it's terrible. I mean, uh, on, on, on every level and you know, the, the performance where she's speaking breathlessly and talking about how she's in the ramble, which the, any police officer knows is kind of a secluded area right. where you, you know, a person could easily be attacked there. And, you know, you would have to, I mean, she would have to expect that they would come in guns drawn to that whole situation, you know? And yeah. uh, I, I, I'm one, I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see how this unfolds. And I don't know if you follow the law boy, law boy Esquire on Twitter, the underscore law underscore boy. But he said, um, he tweeted, I do not endorse Amy Cooper's actions. I am simply concerned that we're becoming a society where you can't even threaten a stranger with police violence while torturing a dog without having to worry about being placed on paid (laughs) administrative leave, Um, which I really do empathize with. Um, And yeah, and and, and here's the thing that she said, right? When she apologized, she goes, I sincerely and humbly apologize to everyone, especially to that man, his family. It was unacceptable. And I humbly and fully apologize to everyone who's seen that video, everyone that's been offended, everyone who thinks of me in a lower light. And I understand why they do. When I think about when I think about the police, I'm such a blessed person. I've come to realize, especially today, that I think of the police as a protection agency. And unfortunately, this has caused me to realize that there are so many people in this country that don't have that luxury. Okay. No, you this did realize gonna it. This woman's going to spend eternity in a vat of boiling oil with Strom Thurmond, I think. Like, this is she's, this is not going to work out well for her in the afterlife, mm, I don't think. Right. But uh, she's given up the dog back to, uh, she surrendered the dog, not to be killed, but to an agency, a shelter she adopted it from. Um, she's been fired. And again, why, I, I can't, I know it's just so stupid, but it's like, you obviously knew that the black man you were talking to doesn't have that luxury, which is why you evoked that. 
which right. is why you threatened him that you were going to call the police and mention he was African-American. Yes. Like, it's so much worse than it would already be be bad if she had just done what she did and got on the phone and said there's an African-American man uh, threatening me. But this just makes it it's, it's like makes it premeditated. Like first it's like racism in the first degree, uh, racist threat in the first degree, not the second. It's also stupidity in the first degree, because the, the operating issue here is that she didn't want to be t- t- taped. So she knew she was on camera. And so right. she said to, to not think about how that's going to play on Twitter right. uh, was interesting. Right. She another, said the quiet. Aspect. She said the quiet part out loud and on video, as they right. say. Uh, and also, uh, really quickly, uh, notice how she's uh, racist. And she says that she, she didn't realize that in this country. There are so many people in this country that don't have that luxury. Okay, she's trying to play the Canada card, the Canadian card. Is but she Canadian? she's Canadian. Wow, and this as we adds mentioned, to our, This adds yeah. to it, right? Because she, that's a triple. Now she's even wor- in worse trouble because as as we called out a couple episodes ago when we had on Canadian Aaron Mate. Well, that's, if you remember, I took the pro-Canada side. You did, and what was, and I took the anti, and one of the reasons I took the anti was because racism. Uh, uh-huh. And they get and they don't get called racist the way the United States does. Now, we should be called racist in the United States, but Canada should be also. And they really they never wear that. They never hold that mantle. So if anything, there's a lot to learn from this. But one of them, again, is we have to raise awareness about Canadian racism. Canadian, Canadians. Yeah. Canadians. Yeah. Because, okay. again, she can't say in this in this country. Right. Right. I mean, well, she can uh, say it, but it's true. But I think also you want to you wanted to, with this incident to highlight how awful it was when juxtaposed against another big story. That- yeah, thank you. Yes. So uh, this, yeah, this, you know, the question of, of the police, the legacy and present day um, existence of racist um, violence against black men in particular, but black people in particular, uh, black people um, was on display. This the thing that could have happened actually did happen in Minnesota. Uh, can we play the video of that? Which is really disturbing. Um, people should. You know, I want to warn people. God! Ah! Yeah, Look how they people out here. Got him feet on the ground. He's crying. Please. Please. Please, I can't breathe. Please, man. Please, man. So that was what that was um, the victim is Floyd, uh, George Floyd, an unarmed African-American man. And he repeatedly told a white Minneapolis police officer who pinned him to the ground Monday with a knee to his neck. Um, and uh, as everyone heard, he was saying, I can't breathe. He died. Uh, four officers have been fired. And this is uh, incredibly disturbing. And there were protests, by the way, uh, understandably. And police fired tear gas and rubber-coated bullets at thousands of demonstrators who gathered Tuesday to protest the, the killing of George Floyd. He was 46 years old. He was unarmed. And he was pinned to the ground. And he was uh, handcuffed. Uh, he was absolutely no threat. I don't know how many times you have to hear someone say, I can't breathe. It's like, and Matt, you, I want to ask you to talk about this because you wrote a book about Eric Garner. Oh, I can't oh, breathe. I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's so like d- disturbing is like 
How? I mean, I would just think that for purely optics sake, like obviously these men are, these police officers are, I don't want to say this in a way that exonerates this, like the police system, because I think this is baked into it. A uh, feature, not a glitch, as uh, Alex um, Vitali would say. But these men are monsters. I just thought that maybe his saying, I can't breathe, would like trigger a memory in their brains um, out of, you know, a sense of just like optics, PR, that maybe you should stop, you know, choking a person, whether it's with a nightstick or with your arm or with uh, your knee. So uh, obviously I spent like three years of my life on this issue and uh, in, in covering it, incident that was, it was remarkably similar. The, the thing about the Garner case was that there was not even a, uh, a suspected crime. What I should say is, I, I've, I spent a lot of time talking to police for the for the for that book. I, I rode around with police, um, and what cops will tell you, uh, and and I'm going to get to why this isn't a, a good explanation. But what cops will tell you about why stuff like this happens is is that policing is an extremely difficult job where you are all day long physically wrestling with people who, um, you know, are trying to hurt you, often have uh, unclean needles in their pockets, right? So police, police have an extremely difficult job. I, I, I should just say this, right? They, there are a lot of good, well-meaning cops who do this job, and the ones who go into it trying to do the right thing, they quickly find out that it's, it's a brutal, terrible job. And there's, there's really no way to, good way to do it. Now, there are two ways to handle that, all right? The, the, the police who I spoke to who, uh, let me just add an additional complication. So with the advent of new policing strategies like broken windows, uh, what most of these patrol officers have been told is that their mandate is to make as many stops as possible because they, they have to st statistically show that they're engaged in activity all the time. They're trying to catch people who have outstanding warrants. They're trying to find serious criminals, people who might be carrying a gun. So you stop people for minor offenses all the time because you want to use that as a pretext to check and see if somebody has a gun, see if they have a warrant on them, see if they're an escaped criminal. So that's, that's the logic behind stopping hundreds of thousands of, of people a year on dubious pretext, whether it's jumping a turnstile. In this case, I think it was a suspected forgery. So they, what they do is they, they approach huge masses of people, they search them, and then very often uh, you end up in a situation where there's, there's some kind of resistance, people refuse to be searched, whatever it is, and then this happens, right? And so there's, there's two ways that police can handle this. One is that they're dealing with a tough job. Another one is they're dealing with bosses who have given them an irrational mandate to stop people who are in is basically innocent. And the, I think the good police handle this by trying to be more like people, right? They, they learn how to get along better with the people in their neighborhood. They, they, they solicit more intelligence about who's really the bad guys and who, and who, and who isn't in, the, in those neighborhoods. They learn to negotiate verbally with people, right? Like it's, it's a very particular skill to deal with people who, you know, are at risk, who are high, who are dangerous, who are, who are just trying to, you know, who have, are low-level drug dealers and they're trying to feed their kids, whatever it is, right? Um, and then there's another kind of cop 
who deals with the pressure of that situation in the opposite way, right? Basically what they say to themselves is I've been given an impossible job and my bosses have given me an impossible task. So the only way I'm going to handle this is by just putting the hammer to everybody because that's the only way I can do this. And what they do is they tell themselves this, right? And they start handling all these situations that way. And when you add that to the statistically heightened number of incidents that uh, they have because of these policies, people start dying in, in, in ridiculous numbers. And I, I think, I think the, the, the thing that particularly conservatives don't understand about this issue is that like, they always just want to say, okay, yeah, policing is a tough job. Uh, like the, the context of this is, yeah, maybe there are five other people who, right. who said they couldn't breathe previously and maybe they fought back. So we don't, we're not seeing that. But the problem is the whole, the whole basic approach is wrong, you know, yeah. the, and, and, and there isn't really an excuse for this. And it, it just keeps happening over and over again. And we're just not rethinking how we do policing generally. Right. And also it's like, you know, yeah, sure. I get the argument for conservatives. Like if you care about public safety and you care about cops and let's, some of them don't care at all about the rights of people who are suspected of crimes. Um, there it's stupid because this does create, you know, it's not good for cops to be in this position where they feel like they have license to do that. I mean, I feel weird saying that because like, I'm also like, who cares? I'm a little bit like, they're not the victims here. Well, but the, just the, to make there, the point for- There is something to that though, because because they, the, the, the police, they've, they've, been, they've been given a task and then they've been kind of, very often they've been kind of like subtly told, we're just, we're, we're not gonna like come after you if you do X, Y, and Z. And we want you to get it done however you can, right? So there's culpability that spreads, but it doesn't excuse how the way they behave. I just exonerate the individual ones, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but you know, it's just like not that it would have been okay if he hadn't been handcuffed, but the guy was handcuffed. Like, what is your weird? And then this is just obviously there's like racism and like weird like macho. Well, of course, you would never do that in a white neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, they should be. I think there I should be pros prosecution for this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, they should for sure. be for murder. They should be prosecuted for murder. There is no justification whatsoever for having your knee on someone's neck for while they're handcuffed. I mean, it's just like there's no possible explanation. There's no possible justification for it except like real dis devaluing of life. And they said something about like, uh, they said he at first they said he was resisting arrest. Um, and then you hear them saying like, oh, you're a tough guy resisting arrest. And then, of course, there's another um interesting uh, comparison. So there's, of course, the Eric Garner comparison, but then there's the the protest comparison, right? Because then people were protesting in Minneapolis um, and the, and cops used tear, um, tear gas and rubber bullets. But when a bunch of white, mostly white people were protesting social distancing, no one laid a finger on them. Right. And that's another aspect of this that I, that I think, again, because I spent so long listening to the conservative pro-police arguments about this stuff, um, so they will argue to death, well, the reason that we have to be so rough with suspects, and they'll show you this, they'll take you out on tours and you'll, you'll see exactly what the job is like. Like they, they, cops get punched in the face. They, 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 all kinds of terrible, terrible things happen to cops on the job. I'm not going to dispute that. Sure. Pro the problem is that they, they don't you they don't employ the same tactics in other neighborhoods. So they're right. not stopping a gazillion people in Westchester or, you know, you know, Bergen, New Jersey, whatever it is, so that these 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 confrontations aren't happening. So you can see the clear di dichotomy 
and the, the two different ap approaches. And I think you know, just one more quick thing about your the thing you say about cops with masculinity issues. This is another thing that a lot of cops will talk about and that that the most dangerous kinds of police are the ones who are like a little bit too into it. Like in the case of Garner, the, the police officer in question was this guy, Daniel Panaleo. He was known to everybody in the neighborhood and he's kind of like slightly a little guy. Like he's not mm, tall, right. but he was, he was like a, a weightlifter type. And he and his, uh, they, they call him his running dog guy, this other detective who was involved in the, in the incident. Uh, they were both kind of sort of undersized weightlifter types who just didn't know how to talk to people on the street. And so they would immediately jump from zero to 60 in every com confrontation. And they, whenever anybody got involved with any of them, they you would people would end up against the wall, face up against the wall, on the ground, whatever it was. They just right. didn't know how to deal with people any, any other way. And there's just too many guys like that in the job. Like they, they and, and even if they have long complaint histories, which they did in the Garner case, they're never taken off the street. Even if they have lawsuits where, they, where they've cost the city lots of money, they're never taken right. off the street. So I, I, I think one of the things that, about this, and we'll have to see what, the, what comes out in this case, but you'll, what you'll find is that almost, in almost all these cases, a lot of these officers, there were warning flags ahead of time that uh, this kind of thing could happen and nothing is usually done about it, which right. is, I think, even makes it even worse. The other thing is I was talking about this, I remember with a friend of mine who's a, a doctor, and he's like, look, we people come in who uh, are mentally ill. People come in who make us feel unsafe. I don't like carry a gun. And it's like kind of like if you're if you are too triggered, so to speak, like don't do the job. Like if you feel like right. you can't do this stuff without overreacting, um, then don't do it. Like I, I look, I have I get how hard this job is, and there are people who are killed on the job. But it's also like then go into being a fighter, firefighter, not that there's not a hugely racist legacy there, but that's another issue. Like find a job that doesn't, if you can't take this, like take the heat, get out of the kitchen, like do something else. Yeah. Um, and also the, the job would be significantly less difficult if they, again, if they didn't, if their, if, if their strategy wasn't to stop, stop a thousand, you know, a thousand people a day, you know? So. Right. Well, Alex anyway. Vitale, who we should have on, who wrote this book, The End of Policing, uh, who considers himself like a prison abolitionist, but he's also a realist. He's like th that means certain things for him, and and he can explain that. And but he, um, I he, what's so interesting is he says that you know a lot of the assumptions that we have, which is like if police commun police their own communities, um, there'll be less bigotry. That's actually not true because again, the same systemic pressures exist and the quotas for tickets and you know. Yeah. Um, and he also said, I was like, well, what does abolition look like? And he's like, well, we already have abolition some places. Like if you, you know, you look at, at these schools on the private schools on the Upper East Side. And I was like, I went to one of those. He's like, yeah, OK, so imagine you got caught with drugs. Uh, the school would be like, Katie, what did you do? You know, we're not we're going to talk to the school counselor, psychologist. We don't tell your parents. Just talk to them. And then maybe if I kept doing it, they'd be like, all right, Katie, we got to talk to your parents. And then maybe after that, there would be maybe they consider like a a, a suspension, maybe then finally an expulsion, whatever. But th this, those levels, like that is the kind of treatment I thought was really interesting. That's the kind of treatment that that everyone should be getting. You shouldn't have to be at a private school on the Upper East Side. 
I just want to add that I'm from the Upper West Side. Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. They the this this kinds of stuff that go on, the arrests, things that would be let go with with a verbal warning in other places, right. or or you would just never find out about in other places. Right. Um, yeah, like and if, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the statistics we found when we were doing when I was doing the book was that you know the majority of drug offenses in New York are actually. Uh, committed by white people, but the vast right. majority of the arrests go in the other direction. And that's because they're just not doing the stops. Right. And, exactly. Right. So, and then yeah. that gives the impression that, oh, these people are just more criminal because look, they're, they get arrested. Yeah, more. That's I where mean, the crime they, is. Yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you can know, you can make that argument about violent crime because violent crime is absolute, like it has to get reported and there's fewer of it in some places than others, but you know, that's a more complicated story. Yeah, but even still, then, it doesn't have to get reported, right? Like, um, but that, that that argument doesn't hold water. It's they, they used it as a probable cause argument for why we have to stop more people in these neighborhoods. So they're basically saying, generally speaking, the likelihood that this that, that we're going to have probable cause against this person is higher in this neighborhood as opposed to another neighborhood. That's why we have to stop right, all these people. Right. That's not really probable cause. So right. it's also based on your false over over arresting right so those Some numbers that, yeah. are going to be uh yeah the oh the other thing i want to bring up is that i remember reading this in your book that like eric garner his crime was was selling lucy's which is ridiculous i don't think anyone thinks you deserve the death penalty for that it's not even um, a misdemeanor execution it's not even misdemeanor but the day that this happened he had just broken up a fight like he wasn't right. even doing that um yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah. again, again, that that case is a, it's like a textbook example. Like the police have to make they have to make a number of right. arrests or uh, citations every month, so they they end up going after the easiest targets. They're not going to take on a twenty two year old kid who might be carrying a gun because who who needs that, right? So they what they right. they look for people like Garner. Garner was three hundred fifty pounds. He had asthma. He couldn't run away. Uh, and he was not doing anything that was terribly serious. So they bust these guys over and over and over again, uh, even when they're not, even right. in, like in this case, when they're not doing anything. And then so many of these incidents stem from, there's a long history of confrontation and that, you know, tends to build up lots of hostility. And that's why a lot of these incidents go south. So then for, I think this what what this will tell you is that, even police who've seen that video, who saw the Garner video, like the like, police have a saying. A lot of them will say, "If you can say I can't, uh, I can't breathe, you you can breathe." So they, right. they, there's this justification that's built so in. Gross. And and you heard that a lot so after gross. the Garner case. Right. Like I actually found multiple people who had been in incidents where they had said, "I can't breathe," and continued to be beat up. Um, so poli police are inured to this. It's it's a nightmare. I just wanted to add. Um, the New York Times posted a story, kind of what they knew about the, the Floyd thing. And the Minneapolis Police Department said in a statement that officer, officers had responded to a call about a man suspected of forgery. Yeah. Okay, and so. that they found him sitting on top of a blue car and, quote, appeared to be under the influence. Yeah. Okay. So, so for the infamous violent crime of forgery. Yeah. Um, suspicion of forgery, which definitely you got to make sure that you are cuffing and kneeling on a forgerer because they are known to be really violent. And uh, I mean, and then they said that he was under the influence of something. Again, if you can't deal with that, don't be a cop. Right.
And yeah, also then there's a whole other issue about how cops should not be handling mental health stuff. And, you know, they need to be working with with medical professionals more around addiction. And, you know, well, yeah, you're, and you're absolutely right. Talk to people who work in ERs there. They deal with all kinds of borderline yeah. personalities all day long and they somehow managed to avoid, you know, killing any of them. So right. At least intentionally. And um, yeah, how how, you know, all these guys with their masculinity issues and they try to be so butch and alpha, you're getting out alpha by nerdy doctors I, I would also say there's a little bit of a generational thing here probably like the younger officers tend to be a little bit worse about this than some of the oh. older ones um at least that's what police will tell you because the more experienced cops have learned other ways of dealing with their job yeah and so the ones who are younger and more gung-ho or yeah should we talk about you ain't black so we got a stone moment for you uh featuring not surprisingly uh, Joe I mean, Biden. It's just basically yeah. a Joe Biden feature. Yeah, yeah. Stone moment has turned into a Biden feature, which, to be fair, was basically that was the case even when Biden was not the only one in the race. Right. When you watch Biden, you feel like you are stoned, right? Like it's right. It's, a contact uh, high. Yeah, it's a contact high. So he had an amazing thing happen. Everybody's seen it by now, but we should, let's go to the videotape. Yeah, video I think tape. we have to. Yeah. This is him with an inter- in an interview with Charlemagne the God on the Breakfast Club. Charlemagne, if you're watching this, Angie, if you're watching this, we would love to have you on the show. Thank you so much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP's endorsed me every time I've run. The war, I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anyway, thanks. I will come back. All right. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here, including the fact that uh, early on- The NAACP this, didn't endorse him. Though. Okay, so the NAACP didn't endorse him. To be fair, if we have one lie from Biden per appearance, that's a pretty low number. Yeah, but, I'm, agreeing. but we didn't watch the whole clip. There are other lies in there, but let's just, we should keep tallying. So we have one lie from this thing, at least, right? I, I actually was amazed that Charlemagne, the guy didn't get angrier when he said that. I mean, who the fuck are you to define people's like racial identity based on whether they support you. And as Charlemagne, the guy pointed out, it's not about Trump because people are not, you can't take the vote for granted is exactly what he's saying. And then Biden proves the point by saying right. being black it is, is like definitionally being someone who votes for a Democrat. And that's exactly why Dems don't do anything or, you know, why Dems get away with the shit they get away with, with racist policies, because they think that these people have no, and I put these in quotes, by the way, have nowhere else to go. Right. Right. And, and it's also reflective of a mindset where the you're viewing human beings as being, you know, you're, you're basically, yeah, you're, you're the, the monolith, like, in other words, you have to have lived in the political bubble for so long to only see demographics, right? And not see right. individuals, right? So you're gonna have working class, 
right. white voters over here and we're going to have black voters over here and Latino voters over here and they always behave X way. Right. Well, and you know what you said, it's like you have working class black voters, you have middle class black voters, you have affluent black voters, right? But it's always just like different shades of white or different shades of white people and it's just the black vote, the Latinx vote. Yeah, it's just so, again, it, sh- it shows this like absolute shamelessness. I know. I know. No, it's it's ridiculous. And, um, you know, I I think and we've talked about this and with with other uh, in other contexts as well. But, you know, I think black voters probably are are now thinking we got to start threatening to take our vote somewhere else. Although I don't know where you'd go. But but the the like until there's again, the reason why every year we worry about, oh, which way are the independent ex-urban white voters gonna gonna swing where are those security moms gonna go it's because they threaten to take their vote somewhere else you yeah. know and uh and they do and so this is this, this is a big problem i think it, it, it was a of all the damaging things that biden has said this one is is particularly bad because it it spoke to a, a pretty profound and ugly truth underlying our politics um, no, again, the problem remains like, I, you know, I remember covering Trump. I went on his like African-American healing tour where he, he was he was getting up and talking about how he cared so much about um, about black voters. And he, he's totally full of shit on those issues. And there's no reason to think that he, he, he there'd never be any any better. Um, but this is this is pretty bad. This this whole thing. And, you know, the, Biden's marketing of himself as the, the favorite of African-American voters and the inheritor of the Obama, Obama legacy is, a, you know, if, if that starts to get wobbly, it's a, it's a serious problem for Democrats um, going forward. I mean, I don't know. How, what are they going to do with this guy? They're going to just not have him be on t- TV? Uh, maybe. I don't know. So, well, I mean, if we're, we're talking about Joe Biden making like really inappropriate comments. Um, this one was actually kind of it was so um, like he takes so many liberties with this. Uh, so he actually like said at an event in 2008, uh, 2012, he threatened he, he told a, a black audience that uh, Republicans were going to do something to them. Look at what they value and look at their budget and what they're proposing. Romney wants to let the, he said in the first hundred days, he's going to let the big banks once again write their own rules. Unchain Wall Street. They're going to put you all back in chains. Okay. They're going to put you all back in chains. Well, so the, the, the other aspect of this is that the cringe factor with... Yeah with Biden, it's, it's just off the charts. Like right. he, you know, the, even, even his use of man and the Charlemagne the God yeah. video is just like, it's like, Oh God, don't, you know? Uh, yeah. and the chains thing, what part of his brain, like he has to run through the flow chart in his head. Like, I'm going to say this and it's going to be received. Like <laughs> where, where does he get up with the, uh, come up with the idea that that's going to go over? Well, I, yeah. I just, uh, I would love to walk through the thought process with him on yeah. that. Pretty bad. Should we do a, a couple of audience questions? We had a couple of good ones. Yeah, so this is a question coming from Dean Buckley, at Dean F. Buckley. Hi, Katie. Hi, Matt. This is Dean from Ireland. 
I just found out two kind of concerning things. Uh, Twitter is now apparently fact-checking Donald Trump's tweets, and the Japanese government is reportedly considering anti-cyberbullying legislation after the suicide of professional wrestler Hanakamura. And I guess my question is, how do we build opposition to policies like this? How do we criticize them when their targets seem to be so indefensible? Because as we've seen with the Michael Flynn case, uh, a lot of people are willing to let the state and other powerful institutions do pretty much whatever they want, as long as it seems like the targets are people they don't like. And, you know, Donald Trump and the cyber bullies who drove Hannah Kimura to her death are not people I'm interested in defending. But I also don't think that elite media opinion writers like Glenn Kessler, who are both incompetent and biased, should be deferred to when deciding what is or isn't true or real. And I don't trust pretty much any government to uh, criminalize abusive behavior online when they get to decide what's abusive without themselves abusing that power. So I'm just wondering how we get people to care about uh, evil policies when those evil policies seem to be directed at bad people. Thank you. Yeah, a great question by Dean. Obviously, this is sort of a primary focus of us on this show. It's a theme theme that we've come to over and over again. Um, But yes, there's a difference in how people look at these issues now as opposed to how they used to look at them. I mean, I'm old enough to remember how the ACLU bragging about how it defended the Nazis in Skokie. And now uh, people have a completely opposite way of looking at speech and speech issues. Um, you, like for instance, when Alex Jones was taken off the internet and there, nobody wanted to hear about the mechanics of what happened there, which I thought were really interesting and un, unusual um, because it, the idea was Alex Jones is terrible. So we're happy, we're happy that he's gone. The, 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 so nobody even knew like, well, what actually happened there? Did, did, the, did, this, did the six different text platforms get together and decide, uh, you know, uh, to, to do this? And, you know, what ends up happening, I think, and I don't know how you feel about this, Katie, is that people, you, you, you start with the, the assumption that um, we're only doing this to bad people, right? And then that, that engenders sympathy for the policy. And then pretty soon you know, inevitably it expands and people just don't notice that, that it's, it's now become a larger issue that affects lots and lots of people. And by then they don't care because they, they signed up for it in the beginning. Right. And they can't, um, they don't want they want to save face. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, we can see that with like Julian Assange, right? Like the tree, I mean, anyone from Julian Assange to Michael Flynn, where um, people are, so disgusted by the person and um in the case of assange i think it's like much it's like that much more messed up because various reasons but he's not well the assange thing drives me especially crazy because people all they say well he he helped trump win the election in 2016 the case doesn't have anything to do with that his case has to do with you know behavior six years before that people don't want to, they don't want to hear that there's a larger issue right. so right and yeah. also as we've mentioned before like and we talked about this aaron like assange wasn't even interviewed about his involvement in uh was not interviewed about his involvement in the hacking by the fbi right right yeah and i, I was actually i did the story on that nobody even asked him 
if that was the case. Like, in other words, no reporter even asked him if he had been interviewed throughout that entire time. Oh, I see what you're saying. Which was, uh, which I thought was amazing. Um, And, and, uh, but, you know, now, so this is going to be something that we're going to be talking about because this is now in the coronavirus era, we've suddenly seen this explosion of removals and deletions and suppressions and, you know, somebody we're going to, you know, I, we're going to try to talk to Michael Moore. I talked to him this morning. Uh, you know, he, he had a movie that's just, it was just taken down off YouTube. And the technical reason there was that it was a fair use violation. Right. But even that is interesting because in, in a previous world, that person would have had to litigate that issue. Now they can just kind of call up the manager, right. so right. to speak and get something taken down. And, and there, and everybody's now like people rush to support the idea of let's just let's just remove right, it right no and also these people usually in other contexts would be on the side of pushing back on fair use like a lot of these people are for like you know wiki whatever stuff right like, yeah uh, exactly you know, um and all, i mean the thing also historically we know this and and you know whenever this is always a troubling argument that we've heard with people saying um well, you know, like about Muslims in the post 9-11 world, like if you have nothing to hide, why do you care about surveillance? Right. And, yes. and, and also historically, whenever things are uh, whenever people who are more marginalized are subjected to things like you were saying before, it does creep into the um, the larger population. Now, I'd like to think that that and that's not the only reason people should care. But if people even for people who are purely self-interested, um, they should care about it. You know? Yeah. And, and, and as you know, the, we're going to talk to somebody today who's going to speak about um, how this, these kinds of policies end up affecting all sorts of people you wouldn't think about. I mean, we've had mass removals of Palestinian journalists from Facebook, you know, in the last couple of weeks. Right. And again, it, it gets subsumed in these narratives that are about people who've been villainized for one reason or another. Right. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago when the Alex Jones thing happened, right after that, Facebook started doing this thing where they were they were going after people for what they call coordinated inauthentic content. Right. And they were taking off, taking down sites that were like pro-democratic party. They were, they were liberal right. in nature. It isn't right, just yeah. about conservatives right. and sort of fringe QAnon crackpots and, and conspiracy theorists. They're, they're going after all kinds of people. Media matters, alternate. That's right. Media. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Black lives matter. Um, was another, I mean, there, there are groups right. affiliated with that. Yeah. Um, no, well, I've always said, and we can go back, we'll have to find it. We can do like a rewind sound effect and then get to me in slow motion. Little, fade crossfade no but one of the examples i always give because i there are people with whom i usually agree on politics on on the left even who i agree with on like you know who are also critical of the russiagate narrative but they're like well you know who cares uh yeah they're never gonna sense they're always gonna censor vulnerable people anyway so why not just censor the other in the other direction and i've always said though that like the for the people who are going to be censored the most are israel critics and palestinians and uh, because of the way, because BDS is equated as anti-Semitic, um, hate speech, I mean, all these things, they were always, and because Palestinians are so marginalized on, you know, multiple levels. And um, yeah, and then we're, as we'll see, that certainly was, uh, came and, to pass. And um, I think the other thing that gets to Dean's question uh, and 
by the way, shout out to Ireland, um, which I think is really important is that if you're going to end up making these distinctions, somebody's going to have to make those, those calls, right? So who's that going to be? It's going to be a, some kind of truth commission of, of corporate executives and or journalists. And these are people who we've seen repeatedly in the last four or five years have been wrong on an, on like a massive level. Right. And, and, and those, uh, deceptions, the sort of official public deceptions, the ones that are backed by the government or backed by the security agencies, whether we're talking about WMDs in Iraq or Russiagate or the missile gap, which was another thing that was fraudulent for years and years and years that drove uh, people to invest more in you know, building nuclear weapons, uh, Gulf of Tonkin, whatever, right? Those things are far more destructive and dangerous than these sort of small fake news stories. But they've they've turned it around in people's heads to make them think that, oh, the dangerous, dangerous propaganda is the stuff that comes from these little air group fringe groups here and there, and those people need to be cracked down upon. So you you end up with this sort of double whammy. Like not only are the are the dissidents cracked down upon, but the people who are making the decisions are the people who are like also give creating official deceptions. Right. So exactly it's, right. And you're also by by not cracking down on those things, you're giving it that much more authority, right? Like we can talk about the the, the fact checking of of Trump's tweets, but. We uh, when I interviewed you a while ago on my show, we mentioned how like, you know, if you do fact check or ban um, certain things and you because they're false and then you don't ban or ever punish or penalize the people saying that there are WMDs, you're giving that that much more credence to people who are saying they're WMDs. I mean, that's ex post, you know, that's counterfactual because that didn't happen then. But whatever the story is now. And what's really weird is that the same people who defend this who defend the like policing of, uh, you know, the putting, taking down Alex Jones stuff, the same people do that are the one and, and want to empower Facebook are the ones who also say Facebook was bad around Russian stuff or, you know, hate Nazi stuff, uh, you know, a- anti-Hillary stuff. So I don't understand how they can say those two things at the same time either. Like if, if Facebook is a haven for Nazis, why do you want these? The, 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 well, they, they, they just, they just want to appropriate Facebook's abilities to, filter content for themselves but yeah you're you're absolutely right if you if you if you fact check over here and then you don't do it over here what you're telling people is that these people are authorities right right. and uh and they're and that's not true right right? so yeah yeah. and the glenn kessler example is great at the washington post we talked about him early on in our you know in this when we started doing the show um and how ridiculous it is uh, how much of his fact checking was bullshit and how that's so much more dangerous i mean I'm obsessed with this idea that like the dangerous media bias uh, isn't from like you were saying, it's not as much from the fringes as it is from the allegedly objective sources, because everyone assumes that they're telling the truth and they do things like sell wars based on lies. You know, and the last thing I would say about this is that I, I do think that there's part of this is because there's a political change in how we look at politics. Right. Like when again, when I was a million years ago before electricity, when I was growing up, like being liberal they were very obsessed with general principles, right? Like, you know, we, we want everybody to have the same rights and we're going to defend, you know, people. And now disagree with the classic Voltaire thing. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, but now I think there's a, there's a very, very uh, major stress on the idea that some people are just bad and that we we don't, we don't want to police the bad speech. We want to get rid of the bad people. 
So it's like if like you, it, it, the old method of policing speech was you, you sued somebody, you remunerated the victim, that speech was retracted, but the person was allowed to continue speaking. Now, now what they do is they try to get like the human being no longer on the platform. And it's very, it's very absolute. So they're making a judgment about, about a person and not about a, an issue or, uh, or a, uh, you know, a principle. Uh, if anything, that, there should be more Judith Millering. <laughs> right, you like it, yeah, like, like tarring and feathering, and yeah, yeah. yeah once yeah. I've done, you know, like because that's not, you know, when you're when you're doing something like that, right, like selling the Iraq War, like I do think that people should. I think that people who have uh, hot, I guess I don't know how you do this, but uh, you know, people who have very prestigious positions at very prestigious outlets, there should be a higher standard but yeah i just don't think they should be like banned forever and like cast right. into the wilderness i mean no. like the, you know, the punish the usually the punishment's pretty strong enough you know yeah like, and you're right so. and either way should, the focus should be because if you don't focus on the thing that happened and you make it about the person then you're not there's no like teachable lesson about why this thing wasn't true right and nobody and nobody's taught to value like intellectual consistency like let's right. think about this over here but right. and you know apply the same right. lessons over there they're, they're just thinking about who the who the person is right. and, and that's, whether that's they're can cancel worthy cancel worthy exactly so messed up good question though uh yeah, all right question. well uh you know our guest for today's show is really perfect in all ways um and perfect for us because he has covered this question of not just um online censorship but also on um Palestinians and the treatment of Palestinians and uh, also has a really cool piece out where he compares Joe Biden's treatment of black people with his treatment of Palestinians and kind of the discourse around those groups. Um, and so people know um, uh, our guest name is Ali Abunima, and he's the co-founder of the Electronic Intifada and author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine, uh, which is now out from Haymarket Books. And he wrote One Country, A Bold Proposal to End the Israeli-Palestinian Impasse. And you can find Electronic Intifada at Electronic Intifada. And you can find him on Twitter at Ali Abunima, A-L-I-A-B-U-N-I-M-A-H. All right. So without further ado, let's, it's, it's a good talk. So let's, let's, uh, let's go have a listen. Yeah, let's have a listen. If you could just tell our uh, listeners and viewers um, where you're from and what, what publications you write for. And uh, uh, you've written a couple of books, too, if I remember correctly. That's right. I am the uh, co-founder and executive director of the Electronic Intifada, which is a publication that focuses on uh, Palestine and the politics around it. I'm the author of uh, One Country, uh, the, A Bold Proposal to End the Israeli-Palestinian Impasse, which is over my nice, left yeah. shoulder. Nice. Trying to do this on Zoom without Very good. getting it backwards. Product placement. Yeah. yeah. Right. The Battle for Justice in Palestine. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. I'm supposed to be working on a, a third book, but... Uh, COVID-19 happened, so I will get back. I'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. What's it about? Uh, it's The idea is to explore the uh, strange or not so strange affinity between Israel and the far right, particularly the anti-Semitic far right. Wow, that's, that's a relationship. Yeah. yeah, it's a relationship that's very visible now, but is, um, you know, goes back to the early days of Zionism as well. Right. 
one of the reasons we want to talk to you uh, is in the middle of all of this uh, COVID-19 coronavirus uh, sort of outcry for more regulation of the internet, um, there's been an ongoing story about what's going on uh, with censorship uh, of internet platforms with Palestine that I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about because there's been a pr pretty dramatic development in the last month, but it also goes far, far back before that, does it not? Yeah, it goes back, at least when we talk about Facebook, uh, to at least about 2016, uh, when uh, Palestinian journalists and publications in Palestine started to see, uh, you know, broad censorship with Facebook taking down posts and closing accounts. And this was done clearly in coordination with the Israeli government. There were, there were public signs of that, of, you know, the Israeli government was bragging that Facebook was, um, you know, complying with its request to take down Palestinian content. And of course, the uh, excuse was always that this is terrorist incitement. But you have to remember that Israel considers, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you sneeze without sneezing into your uh, elbow, that's terrorism if you're Palestinian when it comes to Israel. And that was even so, before uh, COVID-19, right? Even before COVID-19, exactly. Um, so th that was the excuse. But uh, I, I think this is true of many societies, but it's definitely true in Palestine that Facebook has become de facto a really major source of news and information for people. Uh, and particularly pages which would focus on particular villages uh, where people would share information about who was arrested, who was killed, uh, you know, where the Israeli army was invading and, you know, harassing people and so on. So it, 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 it has been and is an important news source for people. And that's what Israel set out to really to, to crush. And um, initially, we can talk about this too. Initially, and for a long time, Twitter, which is another important social media platform, resisted this kind of censorship. But in the last year or so, we've seen Twitter start to crack down on Palestinian media as well in a very similar fashion to uh, Facebook. And the, I guess the big takeaway from this is that um, a lot of what happens more broadly starts with Palestinians. In other words, Palestinians are often the test case okay, right. or the canary in the coal mine, particularly for forms of repression and censorship. And um, you have to add to this, I'm kind of looking, we can get into some of the detail, but kind of the, the broader picture here is that you have to uh, combine this with the clamor for censorship that has come from liberals uh, as a product of Russiagate. Um, and the lies, I think we can call it lies at this point, uh, about, uh, you know, a Russian manipulation campaign, campaign that cost Hillary Clinton yeah. the election, all of which turns out to be illusory. Uh, but what has stuck is this uh, false notion that Facebook played a really big part in this, that social media is out of control, and that it needs to be brought under, you know, greater regulation. And some of that is true. I'm certainly not saying that these big, private, unaccountable companies are, uh, 
you, you know, benevolent right. forces, but the kinds of demands that have been placed, which have even come from people like, uh, you know, AOC, uh, for uh, Facebook to fact check political ads. Like, do you trust Facebook to fact check your podcast or to fact check the electronic intifada? Right, right. I don't, but that's apparently what people are asking for. And, and now we see all this applause for Twitter attaching links to Donald Trump's tweets, uh, which again, you know, is easy to start exactly. on Donald Trump because he's so reviled. Trump's are the, Trump is start, the Palestinians. Well, I'm, exactly. I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, yeah. yeah. In terms of the, you start with, you know, it, it's similar, right? Because they're both like, He's the canary in the coal mine. He is the canary. Right. He's, I mean, it's different. One group, one is a group of people that's totally marginalized and disempowered, but, and one is an extremely powerful person who's also terrible on Israel Palestine stuff. But there is a similar thing where it's like you justify something because either the person is really um, unsavory like Trump. Um, or you justify it because a group of people is uh, you either dehumanize them or you kind of don't care. Um, and, and this is why people should, you know, this is why people who are maybe have good politics in other ways, but are, justify censoring Trump, they should care because it's the same people who will do that are also going to be, you know, mo- uh, censoring Palestinian journalists and activists. Right. Who's going to do the fact checking? People are saying, you know, I've I've been reading these calls and and reports saying, oh, well, we'll have independent fact checkers. Well, who are the independent fact checkers? I mean, we've already seen Facebook and other social media companies teaming up with the Atlantic Council, which is funded by the U.S. government, NATO, the European Union, uh, you know, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia to determine uh, whose accounts are Russian bots and, and not, and, and sometimes getting it hilariously wrong. But this is incredibly sinister if we're going to have basically NATO's think tank in Washington being the arbiter of truth. And, and a lot of liberals are not just applauding this, but demanding right. it. And, and well, they're saying, no, no, but we'll have other kinds of independent fact-checking organizations like, I don't know, PolitiFact. Or, yeah, yeah PolitiFact. But, I mean, none of, you know, this, these are, are run by uh, politi- PolitiFact, the same mainstream media organizations that pulled the Russiagate hoax. Right. And, and so many others. Why would we trust them? Right, right. And then, but, and to take it one step further, they, they don't just want to remove... Uh, certain kinds of content, they're, they're actually removing people, right? W- was there not a, gr- a, a large number of people who, whose accounts were entirely deactivated last month, is, uh, if I remember correctly? Yes, that, that happened last month. There were several dozen Palestinian journalists whose account, who had either posts deleted or accounts deleted. And, and this seems to be happening in waves. And there were previous waves, as I said, going back to about 2016, that target not only individual journalists, but entire media organizations. And one example that is was done by Twitter last um, November, I think it was, they just arbitrarily took down the verified, verified accounts of Hood's News Network, which is a Palestinian grassroots news agency that had millions of followers. I've uh, used, it, used it for years. It's very, very reliable. 
they get news from the ground all over Palestine that nobody else gets. They have an incredible network of journalists. And that network actually started, or that media organization actually started on Facebook. Before they had their own website, they posted exclusively on Facebook. So it was an example of one of the ways Palestinians who are otherwise very disempowered in media terms were able to use a platform like Facebook or Twitter to really reach millions of people. But that same uh, ingenuity made them incredibly vulnerable because Facebook is, after all, an unaccountable private company that is in cahoots with the Israeli government and, and, and other powerful forces. And then you combine that with the constant equating of uh, BDS with anti-Semitism, the constant equating of criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, then it just like makes it all the more uh, doomed, right? Like it's everything is hate speech, apparently. Correct. And that, and there's, so there's been another push by, um, you know, Israel and its various lobby groups to get pretty much any criticism of Israel or a large amount of criticism of Israel redefined as anti-Semitism and to get, uh, you know, not just social media platforms, but universities, governments, pr practically any institution to adopt uh, a, a very misleading and politically motivated definition of anti-Semitism that completely muddies the a line between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. Every decent person ought to be against anti-Semitism, just like they, that we should be against any other form of bigotry. But what they're trying to do and doing is uh, weaponizing false allegations of anti-Semitism to muzzle right. speech by calling it hate speech. Right. And, and this this happened in 2016, if I remember correctly, like Safa was removed from Facebook uh, and then, there are, if I remember correctly, the, the justice uh, ministry in Israel was boasting that it fulfilled ninety uh, that Facebook had fulfilled ninety five percent of its requests to delete content. Um, so this this partnership goes back at least that far, right? R right, and actually, there, there's a, an important update to this yeah, because yeah. Uh, Facebook just. Uh, unveiled its so-called oversight board, which, you know, is supposedly this, I don't know, this independent accountability body, but it's PR bullshit. It's, it's just a way to say, look at all this we're doing. And, in, and incredibly, or not so incredibly, one of the people they um, appointed was, uh, uh, is a woman called Emmy Palmore, who is the former director general of the Israeli Justice Ministry. <laughs> Now, she was uh, the top civil servant at the Israeli Justice Ministry from 2015 to 2019, which was exactly the period when the Justice Ministry set up this so-called cyber unit, which takes credit for taking down tens of thousands of Palestinian posts and accounts. And at the same time as she was the top civil servant at the Justice Ministry, the minister was someone called uh, Ayelet Shaked, who is a very, very right-wing Israeli politician. And the irony is that Shaked became internationally notorious in 2014 for uh, posting on Facebook a call for genocide of the Palestinians. 
uh, and it was really a call for genocide. I'm not exaggerating this. If you if you look it up, she called basically for the extermination of Palestinian mothers who give birth to little snakes. Uh, you know, this is this is Nazi language, uh, and her post got tens of thousands of likes and shares. She eventually took it down because it was so embarrassing. But um, this was the person who was supposedly leading Israel's crusade against Palestinian incitement on Facebook. And it just goes to show uh, how you know bogus it all is. And it's simply about silencing Palestinians, stopping them from communicating with each other, and stopping them from communicating with the world. And now this model is being exported internationally by, for example, putting uh, Emmy Palmore on Facebook's oversight board. Yeah, and, and just so, so I, there's an article on Electronic Intifada about this today, about the Facebook board announcement, and then it links to your piece from uh, 2015 uh, or 2014, um, where you talk about Ayelet Shaked's um, post. And Matt, just so you have an idea of how genocidal this is, uh, she says... The Palestinian people has declared war on us and we must respond with war, not an operation, not a slow moving one, not low intensity, not controlled escalation, no destruction of terror infrastructure, no targeted killings. Enough with the oblique references. This is a war. Words have meanings. This is a war. It is not a war against terror and not a war against extremists and not even a war against the Palestinian Authority. These two are forms of avoiding reality. This is a war between two people. Who is the enemy? The Palestinian people. Why? Ask them. They started. And she, as, as Ali said, talks about them being snakes and, you know, they all want to kill the Jews. And, and she's and it's interesting because she's also saying that words are actions. So she's kind of implicating herself. Right. Because a big argument about about speech is, you know, you have free speech. You just can't incite hate or killing. And she's basically saying that words are weapons and she is using them to incite that. And, and just to point out that she posted that, I believe you have it in front yeah. of you, I don't, but I think it was on June 30th of 2014. And it was the next day or a day after yeah. that several Israeli settlers in occupied East Jerusalem kidnapped uh, a young Palestinian boy, Mohammed Abu Khader, took him to the woods and tortured him and burned him to death. And so, so who knows if, if, if the killers of Muhammad Abu Khader had read her post or not, but they had certainly been imbued with similar sort of incitement from Israeli politicians for all their lives. Right. And imagine if someone had said that, what she said, where she said uh, she justifies its destruction, including its elderly and its women, its cities and its villages, its property and its infrastructure. Imagine if someone had said something like that about Israelis. And then the next day that there had been an attack like that on, on someone, Israeli. I mean, it would be, you know, crimes, it calls for imprisonment. Right. It would be, it would be a huge controversy. Um, so the, 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 the troubling thing, I think, for, with the, the template here, I mean, this is a symbiotic relationship where you have a big corporation that wants access to a market. So they go into a country, but... Basically, the government in that air, in in that territory basically extracts from them uh, a promise that they're going to allow um, the platform to be used 
to, to be censored uh, in a certain way. So it, it, en- it ends up being this kind of trade-off, right, where the government gets control over the media and the, co- and the company gets access to the market, gets to, get, gets to make money uh, in that territory. Um, is, but that's what we saw to begin with in, in Israel and Palestine, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to trace, uh, you know, sort of at that, at that level. What we know, um, and, you know, Glenn Greenwald had written about this too uh, a couple of years ago, is that Facebook and the Israeli government were uh, working together at a high level. Mm-hmm. And there was a high-level agreement that Facebook would implement Israeli censorship. Uh, and Facebook has... A, you know, not surprisingly, not being very transparent about it. But we see the, the kind of pressure on, you know, the political pressure uh, on Facebook uh, to quote unquote do something is not just from Israel, but it's in Congress. Right. It's the European Union has been placing immense pressure on Facebook basically to, to censor content. And so these companies comply because these governments can threaten their commercial interests. So, you know, the the government has an interest in suppressing speech that it demonizes as as terrorist or extremist or whatever. And that's not to say there is not extremist speech, Uh, but, but, you know, that acts as an, an excuse for a lot more. So that's the government's interest. Facebook's interest is to defend its profits and its monopoly. Uh, and nobody is actually has an interest in looking out for people's rights and looking out for actual free speech. So that's the quandary we're in. I don't really know the answer because there there is a real dilemma here. I mean, when we started the Electronic Intifada 20 years ago, uh, which, you know, is incredible to me that it's been that long, the, the internet, which was very different in those days, really felt like a way to get around the monopoly and the gatekeeping. And, you know, you didn't have to own a radio station. You didn't have to own a newspaper in order to to speak back. Right. And so it was very liberating. And, uh, and, and social media still can play that role for a lot of people. But it's clear that governments have realized that and they are determined to shut it down as much as possible to control it as much as possible. And one of the, and, and there you see another convergence of interests because the, the traditional media, the legacy media, which is collapsing due to the you know, complete collapse in its business model and the collapse in advertising, has an interest in suppressing independent media. So they want to be named as the arbiters of what's uh, factual. And you see YouTube, for example, constantly promoting uh, MSNBC and CNN and, you know, all these garbage brands that I don't want to see on my YouTube. I don't go to YouTube because I want to watch CNN. I go on YouTube because I want to watch useful idiots and, you know, a whole bunch of other. Good answer. Uh, no, but it's, it's, yeah. it's true. You know, I'm going there for the stuff I'm not able to get anywhere else. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they, they use words like um, reputable, right? Like that, that's a, that, that's a word that has come into play a lot recently. Like these people are going to be the arbiter of what is reputable news, what's believable, what's, what's solid. And that didn't exist so much in the early days of the internet. Right. I mean, I think, I think that's, 
it suddenly become uh, a much bigger emphasis of uh, uh, you know of, of people in legacy media to try to describe independent voices as as not reputable or, and or dangerous. Yeah, and the, and for a while, I don't know if this is like very 2014 or something, but <laughs> you know, for a while, if the New York Times had to refer to you as an independent source who'd broken a story, they'd refer to you as a blogger. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. it was kind of a way of being dismissive, right? right. You know, uh, we're journalists, they're bloggers. Right. Is that still a thing? Oh yeah, yeah I think so. I interviewed Max Blumenthal the other day about this kind of explosive story he had about the CIA and Julian Assange and Sheldon Adelson and these like private security firm um, run by this guy, the Spanish guy. And turns out they were spying on Assange. Um, no surprises there, but it was kind of a bombshell story. And <laughs> at the beginning of the episode, Max is like, I'm going to have to cut this short. I'm really busy. Uh, you know, got requests to be interviewed from the New York times, Washington post, Chris Hayes got a car taking me to 30 rock. Then, you know, Chris Hayes and David Frum and I are going out for some skewers. Like, it was just ridiculous and hilarious. But, you know, the fact that no one takes certain stories seriously at all, even when they're incredibly important, if they at yeah, all. I mean, yeah. That, that happened to us as well uh, with, you know, the, the huge story that we were able to break uh, in uh, 2018 about the, the censored Al Jazeera film on the Israel right, lobby. Right, right. And which is, by the way, linked to this Facebook story. Uh, you know, uh, I actually have it in my notes here to work this in. So <laughs> definitely, yeah, that was a great. But you know, that was for that briefly for those who who haven't heard about this uh, is you know Al Jazeera England uh, the Al Jazeera Investigations Unit, which is an independent unit within Al Jazeera, stuffed by incredibly good journalists. They did an undercover investigation in 2016, infiltrating major Israel lobby groups, both in the UK and the United States. They had undercover journalists who posed as interns or, you know, who, who actually were, were invited into these organizations. And um, the film, The Lobby, which, which you can find online from Al Jazeera about the UK, was actually broadcast. And it reveals how um, Israel lobby groups working with the Israeli embassy, working with a spy at the Israeli embassy called Shai Massat, were working to undermine the Labour Party, which was led by Jeremy Corbyn, and to, to try to create a fake astroturf pro-Israel youth organization within the main opposition Labour Party. So what's the story here? A foreign power directly intervening in the politics of a member of the UN Security Council to shape its politics, to, to shape uh, its future government. And that did get headlines in the UK. It was a big story. Boris Johnson, incidentally, was the foreign minister at the time and had to, you know, talk about it in Parliament. Shai Massat, the Israeli spy, was expelled from the UK, but they quickly brushed it under the carpet. What happened, though, with the U.S. documentary is incredibly interesting because uh, that documentary, which Al Jazeera announced, Clayton Swisher, the head of uh, the Al Jazeera investigative unit, announced, we'll be broadcasting this, I think it was in October 2017, we'll be broadcasting this very soon. It was never broadcast. 
And what happened was major Israel lobby groups, including the Zionist Organization of America, were putting immense pressure on Qatar uh, to suppress this documentary. And you have to remember back at that time, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia had imposed this, and, and the UAE and other countries had imposed this blockade on Qatar. Qatar hired a Washington lobby firm to lobby the Trump administration to take Qatar's side, or at least not oppose, you know, at least not take its enemy's side. And one of the things this lobby firm did was to dish out huge sums of money to Israel lobby groups, Qatari government money, and uh, also to do this charm offensive with Israel lobby leaders. Uh, including flying them uh, to Doha to meet with the Amir and other top officials. That included the head of, that included Morton Klein, the head of the ZOA, and Alan Dershowitz, among others. Yes. So, as part of the Qatari charm offensive, you know the the logic of of, of I suppose was that, well. If we want to get on Washington's good side, we can't piss off the Israel lobby. So they suppressed the documentary. About the Israel lobby. About the Israel lobby. About the power of the Israel lobby. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we were able to get hold of uh, copies of the documentary and to put them all online. They are online. You can watch them. Just Google or DuckDuckGo. uh, Watch the film The Israel Lobby Didn't Want You to See. And these films uh, are brilliantly done. Nobody has disputed a single fact. I mean, Al Jazeera lawyered them to death. So, you know, these documentaries are accurate. No one has been able to find a single uh, inaccuracy in them. But they show uh, America, you know, pro-Israel American groups basically working as uh, unregistered foreign agents for the Israeli government, part of which includes uh, using AI and other technologies to um, monitor uh, Americans exercising their free speech rights, particularly college students and faculty, uh, and in order to try to crush the Palestine solidarity movement in the U.S. This was done in direct collaboration with the Israeli government, groups like the Israel Project, uh, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies or Foundation for the Defense of Friendly Dictatorships, as it's more accurately called. Uh, the Israel on Campus Coalition, which is working directly with the Israeli government. That's all captured on, um, on uh, un- undercover camera in this film. And one of the things that was uncovered was the Israel Project running a major secret influence campaign on Facebook. And this involved setting up these fake progressive groups on Facebook, which uh, some of which have hundreds of thousands of members. And they would be like fake feminist groups that, that, you know, mostly it was like pretty innocuous content and kittens and pictures of donuts or, you know, uh, commemorating the birthday of... uh, you know, uh, famous progressive figures in history. But then, you know, 25% of the content would be pro-Israel. So the idea was, and you actually have uh, Israel Project staffers describing this 
on undercover camera that the idea is you don't want to hit people over the head with the pro-Israel stuff. You want to kind of like slowly put it into their right. feed with all the innocuous stuff that they like. So, and so you don't look by you don't look like you're driven by an agenda. Exactly. It's just you make look at, you make sort of uh, one of the posts I remember is like. Uh, for like breast cancer awareness day, they had an Israeli F-16 painted pink and a a meme about how like, you know, the Israeli air force is pro-women or something. This is the same Israeli military that is bombing civilians in Gaza and stopping Palestinian women with breast cancer from leaving the Gaza Strip in order to get life-saving treatment. And that was the kind of stuff the Israel Project was putting into these groups. And we asked Facebook, when this was uncovered, and it was all exposed, we reported on it, we asked Facebook to look into it, because this was, remember, this was at the height of Russiagate, and, uh, you know, Russia spent, how much was it, Matt? Uh, 3000 Oh, $100,000. Not even Russia. We don't know right. that it was Russia, but right. Ru- Russians, I don't know. Right. It, right. Yeah some tiny amount on on uh, on ads on facebook and the buff bernie right. meme and the and jesus so masturbation uh, exactly all that stuff which supposedly allegedly cost hillary clinton the election although nobody has able to find a single uh living breathing person whose vote was affected by any of this stuff and some of them came out after the election too some of the uh, ads yeah most most of it most of it was spent after the election so really no evidence of anything. And here's this massive evidence of a sophisticated uh, uh, Facebook manipulation campaign that must have cost millions and millions of dollars. And when we asked Facebook about it, uh, they said, yeah, we, we actually reported this. Uh, w- yeah, we don't see any violation here. And what was interesting is that because remember, Facebook did this whole thing about how you have to be transparent and you have to advertise, you have to right. be clear about who is behind groups or ads and so on. And these groups, most of them did not identify clearly that the Israel project was behind them. They either didn't say it all or they just had something like, you know, a tip community. But you didn't know what tip, tip T-I-P, right. what that stood for. It didn't say this is the Israel project. So Facebook was fine just with the that. T- it was it, just the tip. Sorry. It was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So, uh, so that's an example. But also, that was an example. You talked about this huge story that Max broke a few days ago about Adelson and the, and the CIA being ignored. This story was huge right. on so right. many levels because it wasn't just the content of the documentary that was huge. But also its suppression was a huge story. Right. The fact that, that there was this big international effort, effort to stop uh, a major international broadcaster from uh, airing a film that had already been completed and that that was successful um, should have been a story. I mean, just imagine if, uh, you know, CNN had suppressed a documentary on Russian interference right, exactly. because yeah. Russian lobbyists had pressured the network. Yeah. The New York Times would have written unima- about I mean, that, yeah. right? It's also unimaginable, right? But yeah, even if, the, if it's in some way that had <laughs> happened, right? Yeah. And yeah. also not to mention that, I mean, it, there is the meta story, but because this was a very vetted um, 
lawyer proofed documentary, you had all this evidence built into it, right? Like it didn't require more research. So in addition to the meta story, which of course is newsworthy, you had all these facts there that were broken down and, and you saw the interviews with people in cars, you know, the lobbyists driving around and explaining their strategies. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing to remember is that Al Jazeera, because they operate, you know, they're, they're based in the UK or they have a major, um, you know, presence in the UK, they're regulated by Ofcom, which is uh, the British broadcasting regulator, which is much stricter than anything we have in this country in terms of, um, what did they used to call it in the U.S., the fair play doctrine? or Fairness doctrine. Fairness doctrine, which went out the window in the U.S., but still is enforced in the U.K. So after the U.K. documentary was broadcast, um, various Israel lobby groups and individuals who had appeared in the U.K. film filed a ream of complaints with Ofcom, and there was a seven-month-long investigation and every single one of those complaints was thrown out. Right. Ofcom gave this documentary a totally clean bill, bill of health in terms of fairness and factuality and so on. And the US documentary was done to the same standards because even though it was about the US, it was still you know regulated by Ofcom. So it really was completely lawyer proof. Right. Well, the last question I have for you is, what do you think has happened to American liberalism that it has a changed view about these issues? Like, it, there, there, there used to be a pretty heavy presumption in favor of listening to speech from all sides and being against censorship and, again, and against this, these kinds of authoritarian e tactics, but we've had a... Even when you disagree with them, like that was built into it. Right. But, yeah. but it's it's different now. It, it, it seems to be anyway. Do, do you have an idea about what's changed? I don't know that I agree with that character okay. characterization. Maybe that was true about some things, but it was never true about Palestine. I mean, you know, you could never get into mainstream U.S. media. I mean, of course, there are little exceptions. Right. It's like, you know, 20 to 1. Right. Uh it's the New York Times op-ed page has never been open to Palestinians and is not open today. I think the difference is that the whole media landscape changed and we developed our own platforms and our own ways to reach people without um, the gatekeepers. And I think that now, and that's true not just for the question of Palestine, but for a whole range of left-wing and other issues, and right-wing issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the left that's breaking through the, the gatekeepers, it's the right as well. And that's part, part of the story of Donald Trump's success. And it's why, uh, you know, the, the mainstream liberal elite or liberal media, or whatever you want to call them, is, is so angry at Donald Trump and, and the right. It's not because they disagree with him on the economy. You know, they love tax cuts and they love, uh, you know, wars abroad. In fact, the only time they criticize him is when he's not bombing right. countries enough. Right. What they're mad at is that he challenges their monopoly and their uh, self-appointed role as arbiters of the truth. But one thing I will say that has changed and I think is significant, and it's part of why we're seeing this pushback against independent media and platforms where we can have a voice, is that at the grassroots level, there 
is a lot more support for Palestinian rights, a lot more discussion. It's become very commonplace on the left that uh, Palestinians are oppressed and deserve not to be oppressed. And um, so th there's this huge disconnect, I think, between the conversations that happen in independent media, which is growing um, in influence, and the fake resistance media, you know, Mika and Joe, that type of thing, which would never ever discuss Palestine or criticize Israel, but still gets to pose as the brave uh, truth tellers standing up to Donald right. Trump. I mean, j just bridging the things that both of you said, I think that, yes, Palestinian speech was never valued. Um, and then there's the phenomenon of PEP, progressive except on Palestine, right? But I do think there still wasn't the same kind of like demand outside of certain, you know, cor uh, corners. We see a demand for censorship of, of, you know, certain things now, like whether it's Trump or Assange or um, Alex Jones, that I don't think most people would would have even said about Palestinians. Like they were fine not giving them a voice, but they they didn't incorporate that into their kind of like their shtick on free speech. Do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, because it's like, you know, the big liberal bullshitters who are on about campus free right, speech. Right, thought, exactly, right. You know, there is actually a crisis of free speech on U.S. campuses, and the, the, but the people who are being suppressed by universities and by federal government investigations are students and teachers who speak about Palestine. Right, uh, right. You know, that, that's the incredible thing. There are federal investigations all over the country uh, bullshit Title VI uh, investigations completely trumped up against Palestine solidarity activists on campuses and professors. And, you know, the Jonathan Chates of the world and the other... Uh, yeah, the, the, of course, for them, that's n that doesn't exist because they support it. That's the kind of right. censorship they support. It's totally unprincipled. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think anyone can confuse me for a supporter of Donald Trump, right? But I see the danger in in uh, the this the sort of uh, celebration of Twitter fact checking right. him, because that's going to be the model for all of us soon, right? And he, Trump is not really going to suffer from it, right? Right. You know, he's got a big enough megaphone right. and platform. He's not really yeah. going to suffer from it. But we already see the tweaking of the algorithms and and so on to reduce the visibility of independent media. And that's going to become, uh, I think, more and more the method of right. censorship. I don't really know the answer uh, to how to solve it, but surely cheering it on is not where we should be. Right. And that's actually another really important part of like kind of soft censorship or, or, or self-censorship, which is I catch myself doing this constantly on the show. Like if I say something about Trump, I have to give a disclaimer that I don't like him. Because so many people in the quote unquote resistance dismiss really valid criticism of the Democrats or valid pointing out, oh, this one thing Trump is doing is actually a good idea. Maybe he's doing it for the wrong reasons, but they equate that with being a Trumpian, you know, being a Trump apologist. Well, um, because it becomes the reflex of criticisms that you're a Trump supporter. So yeah. no, and nobody wants to have that label stuck to them. Right, yeah. yeah. Right. And of course, I mean, I actually, I don't know how much time you have, Ali, but, uh, would love to talk to you about your piece on Biden and um, oh sure and, yeah uh, no, I... 
So one of the other things, and on a related note, um, when we're talking about kind of the treatment of Palestinians and free speech and viewing them as the this other and these, you know, inherent terrorists and enemies of, of the Jews. And by the way, I want to thank you for making the point that the assumption that being, quote unquote, pro-Israel is, is something that's pro-Jewish or the assumption that being critical of Israel is anti-Semitic is an anti-Semitic trope in itself because it equates Jewish identity with a certain political position on Israel. Um, and you you do you make that point in your recent pieces. And one of your recent pieces, recent pieces, it sounds like one of your recent pieces is about Biden's position on um, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And you have an update because I guess he must have gotten the Ali Abu Nima bump and uh, had to change his position because of your... Well, I mean, it's a very minor change, but here's here's basically what happened is, uh, I don't know, a week or so ago, he put out his platform on the Middle East uh, on his website, and as you alluded to, he didn't put it under a foreign policy section or an Israel section or a Middle East section. He put it in a section called Joe Biden and the Jewish Community. And that should raise a red flag right there because it's like, imagine if you, uh, I mean, it's like putting his policy on China under Joe Biden and Asian Americans. Right. You know, what, what's that got to do with Asian Americans? Right. So we're talking about a foreign policy issue. Or, or uh, so anyway, so that that's, that's the first red flag. But he had this language in there saying how, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden will oppose the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement because, yeah, I don't have the exact language right it here. It veers into anti-Semitism, he says. Yeah, but there was oh, okay. a line after that. What he said was that he would firmly reject the BDS movement, which singles out Israel, home to millions of Jews, and too often veers into anti-Semitism while letting Palestinians oh, off the hook for their choices. Right. <laughs> and what I wrote about is how this liberal language of choices has been weaponized since the Reagan era to demonize particularly uh, poor people in the United States and especially black people. So systemic r racism uh, becomes, uh, you know, bad choices. Right. It's all about personal responsibility. And you see this theme through uh, from Reagan, who uh, weaponized this kind of uh, th this fake narrative of the welfare queen. Right. You know, the idea that poor, poor uh, black people, especially, are taking advantage, ripping off everyone else, and they're making bad choices. And you see that all the way through to um, Obama, where he uh, a few years ago, he was giving a, um, a commencement speech at Morehouse College, a, a, a historically black institution, and Obama admonished the graduating students that, quote, too many young men in our community continue to make bad choices. And uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates had written at the time that it, I would have a hard time imagining Obama telling the women of Barnard College that there is no longer any room for excuses as though they were in the business of yeah, making that. that this specific way of talking down to black people. Um, you, you know, this, the, 
it, this this way of talking down to people is reserved for black people and again admonishing them as undeserving because of their bad choices and so that was what the article was, yeah, was really drawing a parallel between Biden's anti-black racism and his anti-Palestinian racism and it just happened to be a coincidence that I wrote this the day that Biden you know, uh, ad admonished black people that if they didn't vote for him and his horrific record of mass incarceration and working with segregationists and uh, praising Strom Thurmond, yeah. that if they didn't vote for him, you ain't black. Right. Which is exactly actually the thing we were just talking about, the kind of, you know, because he was saying if you vote for Trump, right, you're, you're, you ain't black. And as Charlamagne the God said, like, this has nothing to do with Trump. I'm asking you about your policies and your and your record. Well, de Democrats think that um, the existence of Trump absolves them of having any policies. Well, or, Nancy uh, Pelosi claps. That's not true. Nancy Pelosi rips up speeches and she claps. And that's really that is a game changer. And she eats ice cream. Right. Yes. <laughs> Lots of ice cream. And she calls him morbidly obese. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, what is it, Yas Queen? Yas Queen, Yas Queen, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we didn't actually give people the update. update. Yeah, okay, yes. Very briefly was that after, uh, I'm not gonna take credit, but after I'll I wrote it. my article, but after many other people spoke out as well about that language, the Biden campaign on Sunday removed that particular phrase about, you know, uh, letting Palestinians off the hook for right. their choices. Right. But the rest of his platform remains absolutely atrocious and anti-Palestinian. That's why I said don't get too excited. Right. And also you make a really important point, which is that he's almost identical to um, to Trump on, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. He hasn't pledged to reverse a single one of uh, Trump's policies, whether on Jerusalem or, or uh, annexation of the Golan Heights or the West Bank. I think all that will now be become Democratic Party consensus. Right. All right. Thank uh, so excellent. Thanks so much for, for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can check back in with you again sometime. Yeah. I would I'd love to. As, as, uh, as they say, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Thanks so much, Ellie. Thank so and much. Uh, have a good day. Thanks, man. Great talk, huh? It was. It I was. He's a funny talking. dude, too, I have to Very say. funny. I could have yeah. been talking for a long time with him. I'm going to yeah. have to schedule some follow-up interviews. No, and and this the point he makes is exactly the one that I think people need to hear, which is that uh, while you may think you're getting one thing when you're demanding uh, censorship, uh, what you're, what you're going to end up getting is this, you know? And I, th yeah. I think the experience of of Palestinians uh, with the internet platforms um, has been has been crazy and if people understood uh, the extent to which uh, there's you know things can be locked down that much um, they would be a lot more worried about what's happening in the United States and other Western countries now yeah it seems like yeah I mean, that was a great his point about it, the Palestine being the canary in the coal mine I know. on speeches I think that's very well taken yeah, yeah. Uh, and so if, if Palestinians are the canaries in the coal mine then Donald Trump is the morbidly obese what yeah, Warthog? He, what would it be like because because we did make a the taper point. what's that a, a taper it's one of my favorite animals you never seen a taper no what do they look like Dan do you have a picture of a taper I bet I could find one I have no idea what that is though to be honest you don't Taper animal. <laughs>
Oh, yeah. Hot day. <laughs> I kind of imagine that. Do you think he look that looks like Trump, or were you just trying to think of a porcine kind of porcine? I mean, it's it's a it's a heavy animal. And the body, yeah, and the body, the owl body is kind of rotund. Oh my God, is that a taper? I could spend all day looking at tapers. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just what think are they're... they? They look like like there's an animal high. It looks like you know how people wear. Like in certain religious ceremonies, they wear animal heads. Yes. It looks like an animal is wearing an animal head. I, like, I feel like a taper is is part equine and part something else. Porcine. It's, it has to have some porcine in it. I'm not going to rest until we get a taper. I know, a pet taper. Um, he can be our useful idiot's um, mascot. Mascot, we yeah, exactly. We should adopt one, though. We should adopt it. We should adopt one like a Just ginger. put one like a really, a, a really cheesy useful idiot's t-shirt on it. Make it, wear it. Speaking speaking of which, you should buy merch from us and yeah. uh, rate and review. Rate and um, review yeah. uh, all right. Well, thanks very much. We got yeah, we have you. we have some other uh, stuff that uh, is in the hopper that should be pretty interesting for the show. So uh, please keep uh, tuning in. Uh, rate and review us. Don't uh, leave us. Never don't, leave. Don't leave us and uh, and don't don't listen don't to Positive America. America or watch it. Right, because they're responsible for everything that's uh, bad and unholy under yeah. the sun. So, uh, thanks very much. We'll uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.